Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Exodus chapter 20. To Exodus chapter 20. Um, we have been working our way through the series on the Ten Commandments the last seven weeks, and you're probably, if you've been coming to the Stone for the last seven weeks, you're probably uh, bored of the same introduction we give every week about the Ten Commandments, but here's one thing that bears repeating. The one thing that bears repeating for all of us to remember, especially if you're new to the series, is that God doesn't just show up to a people, and the first thing out of his mouth is, all right, guys, I'm here, here are the ten things that you, I need you guys to do. That's not how this starts. It's important to know that we're in Exodus chapter 20 because there's a lot of things that have happened up to this point in the book of Exodus. And what has happened, you have to remember, is that God saved a people, loved a people, set a people free, and the Ten Commandments is him teaching them what it means to be his people. It's important that you remember that. These aren't in a vacuum. This is God speaking to his people whom he's already saved because their relationship is not built on their obedience. It's built on his work. The same is true in the Old Testament, the same is true for us. It's always built on God's grace first, and then he gives commands for us to follow as people who have been saved by grace. And God's teaching his people, here's what worship looks like, here's what freedom, real freedom looks like in all of life. The Ten Commandments cover all of life. They cover how you view and think about God all the way down to how you handle your anger and how you treat your mom and your dad. God wants to be worshiped in all of life because life is most full when he is at the center. And so today we're going to look at the Eighth Commandment together. So let's look at Exodus 20. Let's do one and two again. As a reminder and a preface that these ten commands are the culmination of what God has already done. Exodus 20, verse 1, this is the word of God. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's a preface to all the ten commands. Verse 15, eighth command, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. So in the eighth command, here's what God is doing. He is addressing our money, our possessions, and how we acquire them. Our money, our possessions, and how we acquire them. And this command, like, honestly, a lot of the commands, when you read it and you see it on the screen, you read it in your Bible, you go, well, of course, I doubt I would have to convince any of you in this room or anyone in our city for that matter that stealing is a good thing. I don't think I'd have to do it. Now, we may have questions of like when life gets really complicated, can't, I mean, how do you apply this? But in principle, I think it's clear to see across um, belief sets, across cultures, people generally can accept this morality and go, okay, this is true, this is universal in nature. Same is, is true with this one is do not steal. We can all agree on that. We kind of have an innate sense that it's good and it's right and it's true. So we, we kind of know that collectively, but individually, you especially know that this is wrong. You especially know that if you've been robbed before, if you've been stolen from before. I mean, if you've been stolen from before, you know that when you have seen someone take what is rightfully yours, how much anger, how much exasperation, how much injustice you feel. You have this visceral sense that stealing is wrong. It's in all of us. Uh, when I was a junior in college, I went and spent a month of my summer in Cameroon uh, in sub-Saharan Africa to work in an orphanage. And basically what we did for a month is honestly, we just hung out and played with and served and loved the kids there. The whole goal of our trip was to go and show these orphans that God had not forgotten about them, that we loved them, we were here for them. So in this small, it's a very small community we were at, in that community, one thing they told us is that, hey, don't worry about leaving your bags locked up. You can kind of leave them anywhere. No one's going to steal them. And I'm like, 
is that a trick? Like, like what, what, are you sure? Like, I just leave it out here and no one's going to take it. And they're like, yeah. And we ask them, well, why is that? I mean, if I left it out here, someone might take it. Why, why in this community are you so sure? He's like, he told us, well, because we, everyone has so little that to steal something is especially egregious. Like, everyone has so, such little uh, possession, so to steal something is especially evil in that culture in their minds. And so that's something that we would leave our bags places and no one would mess with it. We'd leave it for, for an hour and come back and it'd be fine. So it's one of the things about this community in particular, they got this command. And so we were in this community, we're hanging out with these kids, and one of the things that the kids the, what would do for us is they, they would come into our rooms and they would sweep and mop our floors for us, which makes you feel uncomfortable when you see an orphan sweeping and mopping your floor. You're like, this is wrong, I think, on some level. Um, it feels uncomfortable, but you got used to it because they, they're like, hey, we just want to bless, we just want to encourage and serve you this way. And so one day I left some granola bars on my bed. And I just left them, and I went, we, we went out for the day. We came back, and they were gone, and I thought I put them there. So I asked some teammates, hey, did you take those by chance? They said no. And then I thought, well, maybe I didn't leave them on my, my, on my bed. Maybe they were in my backpack, and I just dropped them or something. Whatever, I chalk it up to a loss. They're granola bars, okay? But little did I know, little did I know is that what happened is that there was a kid cleaning my room. He saw the granola bars. He saw them, and he thought, I'd like those, but I can't just take them. So what he did is he took the granola bars and he put them on, a window sill, on the windowsill, but out on the outside so you could grab it from the outside. He leaves the room, goes and finds a buddy of his, takes him around to the back of the house and goes, hey, you see those, those bars over there? Why don't you grab them and we'll split them? Smart kid, okay? Because he knows, okay, if we get caught, even still, I just did what this guy told, I just, I just ate the things he gave to me. So they ate them, hid the wrappers, and thought they, got off, got, they did get caught scot-free, right? But little did they know, that they would be found out pretty, pretty intensely later on. So it's important to remember in the story, I did not know that's what happened at the time. I had no idea that's what happened. So that night, that night we're sitting there in the compound, just hanging out, talking, it's dusk, about to eat dinner. And the kids stayed in two big houses with, with bunk beds. And in one house, there's like these 10 or 15 kids that are in there kind of circling. I can see through the windows, they're circling up, they're talking. It's getting more and more heated more and more loud, and all of a sudden those 10, 15 kids walk out of that house and walk really briskly to the next house. Well, then more and more kids start pouring into that house. 25, 30 kids are in there, it's getting louder and louder and louder and louder, and then all of a sudden we start going, what is going on in that house? Then, as soon as I ask that question, I see 40 children screaming, shouting, all running at me. I was like, I will fight a kid right now. Like, I don't, I don't want to fight a kid, but if I have to, I have to. And so they're running at me. They're running at me, and I don't know what's happening, and they're screaming and shouting. And all of a sudden, I see one of the older kids with an empty gr granola bar wrapper, and they're dragging the kid by his shirt collar. I'm not exaggerating. They drag him, and they lay him at my feet. I'm like, do I kill him now? Is that what I do? I don't want to kill him, but culturally, is that what I have to do? Like, all of a sudden... They lay him at my feet. I'm like, I don't know what the next step is here. Never happened before. Because this kid had stolen it and they found it and they were so angry. They wanted justice. They wanted, now I tell that story simply so that you may have never had someone steal from you and drag them into the streets. If you have, you're an intense person, okay? Let's be friends, okay? If you've done that, okay? But here's the thing why I tell that story. You can understand, at least on some level, that visceral response to having someone steal from you. So I, I think those kids really thought, because that's towards the end of our time there. I, I'd known them for almost a month. But in their, we had so much time together. In their minds, I think they thought stealing from him is like stealing from us. And to be stolen from you, you just feel so angry. How dare you take the thing that is mine? 
that I worked for, that I sweat for, whatever. Now, I didn't sweat for granola bars, but you understand the point. You understand the point. They wanted that justice. And they knew at a really innate level that it was wrong. And for all of us, for every single one of us, we know that this is wrong. And it's not just simply wrong because all of us agree that it's wrong. And it's not just wrong because we have this innate sense that it's wrong. It's wrong because to steal from another human being goes against the image that you bear. To steal from another human being goes against the image that you bear as an image bearer of God. It goes against everything God made us to be. See, for, for us, the most basic fundamental thing is that God made humanity. He made humanity image bearers to find dignity and significance and purpose through acquiring possessions. He actually made humanity to do that. He would provide everything. He would be the one who provides energy and sustenance and everything else that we needed, but he made humanity to find significance and value from possessing his creation. See, stealing is so wrong because it robs people of their humanity. It's part of what it means to be human. See, God did not place Adam and Eve in a perfectly manicured garden. That's what probably most of us think, that the Garden of Eden was like already cut perfectly, there's a putting green over there, like it's perfect. But actually, he placed them in a glorious, good garden that hadn't been tamed yet. That things hadn't been trimmed yet. Things hadn't been brought to order yet. I'm going to show you that in Genesis 2, verse 5. I want to show you how even though God is sovereign over all things, the control of all things, the provider of all things, he still gives humanity a real role and real responsibility in this life. Genesis 2, 5, it says, When no bush, this is before sin, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung, yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Why was there no bush in the field? Why was there no plant in, in the field? Is because there was no man yet to work it. God had designed for humanity to have a real role to play. Look at verse 15. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work before the fall is a glorious thing. Work is not part of sin. Actually, work is part of what it means to be human. God gave Adam and God gave Eve real responsibility over his creation. The garden was there, kind of all this untapped potential, and it was their job to tame it. Their job to subdue it. Their job to take it and make it into a place where they could fill the earth with what their whole mission was to fill the earth with image bearers. They were made to bring order to the chaos of the garden. And they were made to take things from the garden and keep things from the garden. That's part of what it meant to be human. Is there's fruit all on the trees, what? For them to take and to keep. It's part of what it means to be human, is to bring order to chaos and through that work, through that labor, earn the right to take and keep things for yourself. See, every single one of you was made to be a steward, made to feel real responsibility over creation. You were made to feel real responsibility over your own possessions, regardless of whether God gave you a lot of possessions or a little possessions. You're made to feel ownership over them, responsibility over them. And you're made to attain that right to purchase those things through your labors. Now, that's why it's so satisfying when you're able to bring order to the chaos of clogged drains or untapped markets or uneducated minds or dirty rooms or dirty diapers or 
hurting people or disordered bank accounts or whatever else we do, when you are able to bring order to that chaos, it's satisfying, right? It's satisfying to see your effort benefit other people, your effort influence creation, your effort to cause things to work the way that they should. It's a great feeling. It's part of what it means to be human, to through that labor, to acquire possessions for yourself and for the promotion of God's glory in the planet. That's what you're made to do. And that's how it was in the garden. In the garden, when God is central and he's the highest affection, highest allegiance, highest love in your life, all of his gifts find their meaning, their purpose, their vitality. But what does sin do? We talk about it all the time. We replace God with his stuff. We begin to worship his stuff instead of him. And once again, when you take God out of the equation and you just have his gifts, the gifts begin to lose their luster, their vitality, their meaning, their purpose, their very life. Because they can't handle the pressure of you worshiping them. You, you're too needy. You need approval again and again and again and power again and again and again. And these gifts eventually, no matter how good God made them to be, will eventually crumble under the weightiness of your neediness. Only God can handle that weight. Only God can be the one that you worship because he is infinite and never runs out of everything that we are made to need from him. And so for us, we were made to take and made to keep things for ourselves, but now with sin in the world, we do so in ways that dishonor God. Now, you and I steal. You, I, that's one of the things that you could tell somebody who considers himself someone who works hard, and then for me to say you steal feels like an impossibility. Like an impossibility. But I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt here and let me unpack for you what it means to steal, and then you, I hope you'll begin to see this is all of us. We all break the eighth commandment. Because now, now we steal by wrong taking and wrong keeping. The way you and I steal now is by wrong taking and wrong keeping. Let me unpack those two statements. So one way we steal is by wrong taking. The most basic understanding of what it means to steal is what? To take something that isn't yours. The most basic understanding. And when I say steal, all of us tend to think that way is an individual robbing another individual. An individual robbing someone through a breaking and entering or robbing someone through an internet scam and saying they're a Nigerian prince who needs help or something like that. We think of, right, so you think of an individual robbing another individual, and all of us think that's wrong, that's unjust, and you're right. But the other way we steal by wrong taking is much more subtle, much more subtle, and much easier to rationalize. It's when we take things from organizations and take things from a collection of individuals that we didn't purchase the right to get those things. It's when we, we take those things from a collection of people based on our own perception of what should and should not be. See, we think it's one thing to steal from an individual, but a larger they, that feels a little less sinful, a little less like stealing. So we'll take things from companies and govern, governments and nonprofits by rationalizing what well, doesn't hurt anybody. It's not, I mean, who is it really hurting? We say to ourselves, well, they have plenty of whatever is the thing that I took from them. My, my, it's a very small theft relative. We, we think that they should be giving us more than what they should, are giving to us. And so this theft is actually just me being like Robin Hood justice stuff. I'm supposed to steal to, to show how corrupt their policies really are. You find yourself, it's much easier to justify taking from HEB than your neighbor. It's much easier to rationalize. 
And I totally get this. I was guilty of this, of this for a long time in my life. I had to repent of it. Is Here's what I would do. I used to always get the water cup, put soda in it. I used to always do that. I'd say, yeah, yeah, water, sure. And I'd just like cover my hands the whole time. I was drinking like this. You couldn't tell. Okay? And they got smart, made it see-through. It was like this messed up. So, so they... So I would steal that way, right? And, and what would I say? I, so here's what I would do. The first response in my mind was someone would challenge me. I'm like, well, the price of it's ridiculous. 150 is way too much. That's what I would say. But then I would get, and more sincerely, I would start saying stuff like, well, I mean, I don't have a lot of money. I'm in college or I'm just out of college. I don't have a lot of money. And so, I mean, really, my little soda and my little 150 is not going to affect them in the slightest. That's what I rationalized. I said, no, it's not going to affect them. It's a drop in the bucket relative to what they have. And I just thought, who am I hurting? Who am I hurting? See, in my self-justifying mind, it would be the most awful thing in the world if I walked into a restaurant, didn't even go to the counter, went to someone eating dinner, took their cup, said, it's my cup, punk, and I took it, and I just went and got soda. Could I, could I ever justify that to you? And you go, um, I see what he's saying. That guy was kind of mean. Like, no, that's, no, there's no way. It's clear, because why? Because we see it as an individual robbing another individual. He purchased that soda, I didn't, that's not fair. But somehow we don't think the same applies to that restaurant. They purchased that soda, and I'm saying, I don't need to. I'll just take from you. I'll just take from you. See, we think it's not hurting anybody, but it's a fallacy. It actually is hurting people, just not as directly or immediately as an individual robbing another individual. You're still hurting that company, that restaurant, when you steal from them, just not as directly, not as immediately. And and then I thought about, well, and if I'm the owner of that restaurant, or I'm an employee at that restaurant, I'm going to feel very differently about the situation if my livelihood depends on you buying sodas. If if I'm them, you know what I'm going to say? You want a soda? That's great. You can have a soda. 150. That's how that works. If I was them, I would think, we bought the soda from somebody else and the carbonation from somebody else and all the sugar and chemicals from somebody else, and they gave it to us, and we're not giving it to you for 150 And that price, 150 it's fascinating to think about the price of what I was stealing and the price of things that you and I typically steal. Most of the time, they're not significant. Like, like for me, I wasn't making any money at the time when I was doing this. But was 150 really going to change my world? I just spent 10, and yet that 150, that would just make me broke. And then, let's say, let's say I was so in such poverty that I couldn't even afford the 150. Okay, can I really not go one meal without soda? Is water really that bad? See, what you find, the ways that you and I typically steal in this room, it's not out of need, it's out of pride. It's not out of need. Like, if you start going, like, well, what, what if I just steal bread to feed my family? That's not most of us in this room. The, the amount that you're stealing, if you're rational, if you're rational at all about it, you think and go, that's not going to change my world. We steal, steal out of pride because we want to show them it's, it's a stupid price, or we steal out of fear. We're fearful about the future, so I'll just, get, I'll just shave off this one thing, and I don't want to eat the cost. I want them to eat the cost. It shows how insidious, how it's deeper than just about the price itself. It shows us that our hearts are really fearful and prideful. We're scared, so we steal so often. So anytime that you take pencils, from pencils to money to time that does not belong to you, 
That's stealing. That is stealing. Whether it's against an individual or an organization, you are hurting people. You may not see their faces, so you kind of convince yourself it's not as detrimental, but it is. Because these, these, when we think of stealing from organizations, we think of them as entities, but there are people that inhabit those entities. So we steal from them. And so we are wrong takers. And we take things wrongly, we steal from people. But the other way we steal is not just by wrong taking, but by wrong keeping. By wrong keeping. And by wrong keeping, we steal from God himself. With wrong keeping, we steal from God himself. Now, I have to say again, it's not a sin to have money and possessions. It's not a sin to have money and possessions. God makes it clear throughout the Bible, he's not against that, he's not anti that, and that his goal is larger than just not stealing. His goal is generosity. The opposite of not stealing, the proactive command is to be generous. All through the Bible, that's what God is aiming his people towards, is towards generosity. And the reason he's after generosity for you and for me Because generosity, like nothing else, communicates what is most fundamentally true about everything you have and everything I have. We don't own it. God does. Giving communicates this isn't mine anyway. I don't own this anyway. God owns this. Now, if you're thinking, but I worked hard for this, maybe you did. Maybe you gave blood, sweat, tears, energy, time, effort. You worked your way up. That is fantastic. Great job. But it's still, even that's a gift to you. Because the energy that you used, the abilities that you used, the fact that you don't have a degenerative disease is a gift. The air, the ability to breathe, a gift. So even if you had to give a lot of effort to get to where you are, it's not a bad thing. But it's an arrogant thing for us to claim, and I did it all on my own. No, God gave you the gifts of energy and the gifts of abilities that you were putting into practice. So everything we have is ultimately from God. And so one of the ways we honor him for his gifts and we trust him over money is through giving. Because when you and I keep our money and our possessions solely and entirely for ourselves and our purposes and our plans, we rob from God. Look at Malachi 3.8. God's gonna rebuke Israel in this text for the lack of generosity. Listen how he, listen to the language of it. Malachi 3.8 says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now the language of this text is really fascinating. Do not, now listen, if you've been in church in a while, do not let your, the word tithe go, oh, here we go. Like that, that's not where we're going. If you're wondering, does that mean we have to tie the church? Is that what you're going to go into? That's not the principle of this text. really isn't. In the context of this, God is calling out Israel for their lack of generosity. And through the Old Testament prophets, as God often does, he calls people out on their disobedience and their deception for acting like they're loving him when they're really not. So he tells them, you are robbing me. He does not say, you are stingy and you're cheap. Why does he use the word robbing? Because if the money is theirs, the money's theirs, then to not give to God's causes and purposes may make you stingy, may make you cheap. But if all that you have is God's, then to not give to him what is rightfully his is to steal from him. 
is to rob him. It's withholding the thing that is actually his right and saying, no, this is not yours. See, when you and I are not generous, we keep everything for ourselves, you have to know we're stealing from God. We're stealing from God. We're acting like everything I have is mine, and I decide what purposes and causes are worth sacrificing for, not you. I deem if I'm at a place financially that I'm able to give, not your word, not what you say, God. That's what we're saying. And I fear that a lot of us in this room would have no problem going, all that I have spiritually is God's. Totally agree. I'm only able to be called a son or daughter of God because of what Jesus has done. But in the back of our minds, we kind of think, that, but the material things of my life, my money that I have is from my hard work. Kind of, I get to decide what I do with those things. And we've forgotten that God gives and provides all things from your salvation to your savings account. Don't make this deity who has certain authorities in certain places with certain people and certain aspects of your life. He rules over everything. We sing things like Lord over all. We really mean all, all of our lives. So here's what I want to do. I don't want to tell you what percentage to hit. I don't want to tell you where to give it. I want to give you some questions to diagnose the way you view money. Because I think what happens with money, because we start feeling guilty, we start going, okay, just tell me where to give, and y'all leave me alone. Right? That's what happens. What's the number I can give for you to leave me alone, Tyler? And I'll do it. That's what happens. And so it's not this heart issue of, God, what are you calling me to? It's what do I have to do to do the bare minimum? So I, I want to ask you questions for you to now kind of think through, not for other people, not person you think is greedy, but for you, do you view your money this way? So just out of the gate, do you view your money in terms of how can I be generous to God and his purposes in this world? That's the fundamental question. How often do you look at your finances and your bank account and log in and go, okay, I have that number, or I made that number. How can I give to God and his purposes? So do you view your finances as how can I, with the money God's given me and the possessions I have, care for the poor and the oppressed in this world? How can I care for orphans and widows? That's one of the main things God wants his people to do in this world is to alleviate suffering by using the ways God blessed us to bless other people. It's one question. Are you viewing, do you ever, not just do you do it, do you view your income as an opportunity to be generous with it towards the poor and the oppressed, the orphan, the widow? Secondly, do, do you view your finances as, okay, I want to give this towards the gospel being protected and treasured and the gospel being advanced in this city and in the nations? Are you giving towards God's glory going all over the planet? Are you even thinking about it? Are you, are you providing for the needs of the people around you? Some of you have people you have to take care of, people that are depending on you. And the question is, okay, are you thinking about them when it comes to your finances? See, if you just make it about a number to give or a percentage to hit, you miss the heart of what God's doing. God is saying, I want you to know that even whatever percentage you give, give me, I own all of your money. Whatever number you give me, all of it's mine. I'm providing for every need of yours. But I want you to give to remind yourself all that's been given to me is from God. And I want you to ask yourself, what are the values that are truly deciding how we give? Is it guilt? Is it really guilt that just motivates me to give because I feel bad? Or is it actual joy that, no, no, God has provided for me. I want to see his name made great. 
You need to ask yourself, what are the values you use to assess that? What are the fears that you have that, that really cause you to make decisions? Because most time we make decisions out of fear, afraid of losing something, so we hoard. So ask yourself that question. Because we steal by either wrong taking or wrong keeping. Why do we do that? But like why? Hopefully you see at this point, all of us, whether in small or big ways, we steal by wrong taking or wrong keeping. But why do we do it? Because you and I worship the wrong God. We worship the wrong God. See, money, possessions, wealth, they will lure you away from God like nothing else. Like nothing else. Many of you have probably heard this before, but it, it, it bears repeating to tell you, Jesus addressed money and the love of money more than anything else in his ministry. More than sex, more than heaven, more than hell, more than anything else, he addresses money and love for money. More than anything else. And even how he taught on money shows you how strong he thinks its deceptive allure is on your life. Matthew 6, 24, here's Jesus speaking. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus pits these two things against one another. He's saying money is the type of master that will share no ground with God. So share no ground with God. Now, what is it about love for money that makes it unique relative to all the other issues and dysfunctions and sins that Jesus addressed in his ministry? Why is it so unique? Money is unique because it promises you everything God promises you, regardless of your appetites. Money is unique because it promises you everything, literally everything God promises you. Money says, I can get it for you too, regardless of your appetites. See, all of us in this room sin. All of us in this room break God's commands. And Christians actually know this better than anyone else how much we sin because our confession is, my sin is so bad and I'm so sinful that Jesus had to die for me so I could be made right with God. Christians actually own up to their sin more than anyone else by our own confession. So the fact that we all sin is true, but here's what you find in life. There are certain sins for whatever reason really intoxicate you. There are certain lies that for whatever reason you just have such a hard time not believing. These certain sins that more than other sins just draw you away, it seems like so much easier than others. Let, let me give you an example. For some of you in this room, you struggle with the approval of other people. Like you want it so bad. The, the joy of your day rises and falls with whether or not people liked you. And you can tell that by the one day someone doesn't say something nice to you and you start all day thinking about, did they like me, did they not like me? What would that mean? What did that mean? I don't know. Because you're so obsessed with it. And you're so obsessed with approval of other people that you're willing to let go of what God's word says just so that you'll be liked. And for whatever reason, that particular struggle is so difficult for you to not fall into and it's so hard to believe God's truth relative to it. And so you, you, you take that struggle. You, you struggle with approval. You go to a friend. You say, hey, I'm struggling with just approval issues and these kinds of things. And that friend, they don't struggle with it at all. So they go, why? It's dumb. Just don't do it. Like they, they give you that kind of counsel. Because in their mind, because they have a different disposition than you, they think, what's so hard about that? What they think doesn't affect you. A line that I've used is their imaginary thoughts can't hurt you. Who cares? Like that's, we say that, but then that person talks about how they struggle with comfort or they struggle with power. 
and they really want this promotion or this influence, and every time they're not respected, they get angry. And the, the approval person's like, why do you struggle with that? Who cares? Do, do you see what happens? We all have sin, but for whatever reason, there are certain things that appeal to us more than others. Now, this is where money is unique. And this is why love for money uniquely opposes God. Its appeal is universal. That's the difference. Its appeal is universal because money comes to you and says, whatever your fix, I got you. Whatever it is you're really after, I can get for you. So money comes to you as a God and says, you really want approval? If you get enough of me, people will like you, I promise. Look at the rich and famous. Everyone likes them. Get enough of me and you'll get approval. Oh, it's not approval. Oh, you're, you're a power person. Okay. You want power? You get enough of me. I can get you on the right boards, in the right institutions. You can be a mover and shaker if you have enough of me. Oh, no, no, you're not a power person. Okay, how about a comfort person? You, you want pleasures in this life? I got you. I get you the best couches, best furniture, best experiences, best houses, best, best everything. Get enough of me. None of those things are you. You're a control, a security person. You want to know that your future's taken care of. Come to me. I'll make your 401k so strong, you'll never have to worry about the future again. Do you see how money's unique? It comes to you and says, whatever it is you're really using money to get, and you're really after, money promises it can get it to you. And so what, would, what do we do? We begin to worship it instead of God. Now, we don't sing songs to money. Don't, don't think, well, I don't think I worship money. I'm, I mean, it's not like a big dollar bill on stage, like, oh, hell, like, that's not what we're doing. That's not what I'm talking about. When I say worship, here's what I mean. You begin to trust money and pursue money and more often than not, fearful of not having money in all of the ways you are meant to trust God and pursue God and fear not having God. That's how we worship it. We begin to order our lives around it in real functional ways. And money promises to be everything God promises to be. So your wrong taking and your wrong keeping all stems from the fact that you worship the wrong God. That's where it comes from. And this, this is where God shows off his greatness in only ways he can. Because God sees more clearly than you and me how much we steal, all the little ways you justify, all the little ways you rationalize, all the little things you hide from him, you think you're hiding from him and not giving, all the ways you and I worship lifeless money. And he sees all the greed and all the hoarding and all the thieving. And do you know how he changes us? By outgiving us. That's the way he changes you. It's not through greater restrictions. It's not through even greater demands. It's through greater generosity. That's how God changes his people is by outgiving you. By taking your clenched fist where you have all of your stuff and refuse to let it go. And he causes them to open, not by shouting, but by pouring everything out through his own hands. That's how God changes his people. That's why God is like nobody else. And the way that he motivates change is through love. I want you to look at how Paul motivates the Corinthian church, a dysfunctional, messed up church. And he says, he's talking to them about giving to poor Christians in Jerusalem. Look at how he motivates 2 Corinthians 8, 9. 
He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul motivates not with what ought to be done, but with what Jesus has already done. That's how he motivates. He's saying, if you get, if you get all the wealth that Jesus left for you, if you get that, and he became poor for you in every possible way, so you can be rich like him in every possible way, all of a sudden generosity makes all the sense in the world. It begins to melt your heart. When you think about the fact that he became poor in all things, not just finances, but Jesus became poor in influence with the Romans. He became poor in respect with the authorities. He became poor in health with a broken body. And the greatest poverty he would ever experience is the poverty of spirit he felt on the cross. Is the poverty of spirit he felt as God's wrath poured onto him for the ways you and the ways I have stolen. That's the greatest poverty he experienced. And the poverty that honestly God's people will never know. That we'll never know. It's no coincidence, church. It's no coincidence that Jesus suffered for our stealing in between two thieves. It's no coincidence that his suffering for all the ways we stole by wrong taking and wrong keeping was in between two thieves. Thieves just like us. Mark 15, 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And one of those thieves saw this poverty of Jesus on the cross and he spit at it and he mocked it as if he wasn't a thief and needed saving. And the other thief, and the other thief saw his poverty of spirit and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. See, it's faith in that poverty of Jesus when he lost everything for us that turns thieves like him and thieves like you and me into rightful heirs of all things with Christ. That's what happens. It's through faith in that poverty that Jesus had for us. And here's the best thing. In Christ, you become exceedingly wealthy in all the ways money promises to be, but will fail you. Money promises to be all these things, and then markets crash, and death comes, and your money's not there to save you. The things that felt so sturdy, so strong, get taken away so easily, and yet Jesus has made us so rich that it makes everything we're looking to money to give to us look small and petty. Jesus, if you are in Christ, he has made you rich in approval and that you're always acceptable to God. You are rich in power now in Christ because your prayers sway the ruler of the universe. You're now rich in comfort because the God of heaven weeps with those who weep and he consoles us in our brokenness with his presence. You're rich in control and security because he is working all things for your good and all of his investments produce eternal life. Christian, you are so rich. And the thing is, I want to say this, you are also, Christian, rich in possessions. You are, just not in this life. Just not in this life. The prosperity gospel is wrong, not because there won't be a time when we're finally free from sickness and death and poverty and lack. They're wrong because it doesn't happen in this life. The prosperity gospel preachers became heretics because they got their timing wrong. 
all that happens when you're resurrected from the dead in the new heavens and new earth. Jesus makes promises all the time of one day there's coming, I'm going to come back and I'm going to make all things new and you won't, there won't be any more poverty. Won't be any more sickness or lack, but until that day comes in this life, you learn to trust God through suffering and lack and voluntary losing. Jesus, our founder, shows us the way. Our king shows us the way. In this life, he trusted God through loss. And in the real life to come, he shows us that God exalts those who trust him. But it's in the next life. And so that's why we can give away now and we can and sacrifice now because we know this won't always be. That God has good promises for us and he fulfills every one of them. And when you, so when you get all this, like not just knowledge that you understand with your brain, like you can say it back to me, but when you get this and you believe this, then your heart begins to melt at the incredible love of God for you. Why would I not want more people see how great he is? Why would I not want the poor and the oppressed to know God has not forgotten about them because God didn't forget about me? Why would I not want the nations to hear about this great Jesus who lost everything for me and did it out of love? And now he motivates me not with just shame, but with his grace and his love and his joy in me already. When you get those things, generosity makes all the sense in the world. So church, let me give you two things to do when you can feel yourself, feel your heart loving money, trusting money, fearful that you'll lose money. Give me two things will be done. The first thing is do what I just did. Remember the poverty of the Lord Jesus. Just remember, wait, who's the one who died for me? And remember that all the money you may get, they're not gonna, it's not gonna give you the things you're really after. It's not gonna free you from anxiety. There's nothing about having wealth that makes you less anxious, nothing having promises that supersede this life and a God who runs this world can take away anxiety. So just take a moment to remember and then as you're remembering it in your mind, actually pray to God, God, help me believe that. Because the best you can do on your own is just say those words out loud but it not mean anything to you. As you say those things out loud to yourself and in your mind, you rehearse these truths, as you memorize 2 Corinthians 8 9, memorize that verse, you're thinking about generosity, but then pray, God, help me believe it. Because you're powerless even to believe these true things that you want to believe. And God is faithful to provide faith. And then secondly, so first, remember the poverty of our Lord Jesus. And secondly, secondly, be generous to help yourself believe these things more deeply. Be generous to help yourself believe these things more deeply. When you finally obey God, not, like not just in talking, not in theory, but you actually make a decision you would not have made otherwise in order to obey God, you see him come through in faith. Like, like you, you get to see him say, oh, wait, I was terrified to do that for him, and it turns out it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Oh, my, he actually came through for me. Oh, I, I feel more free that I gave this away, not... Let not more uh, restricted, all of a sudden when you begin to obey, it strengthens your faith. Because especially in this room, a lot of us, we worship money more than we realize. Because you don't really realize it until it's taken away from you. We worship it more than we realize. And so we find ourselves kind of addicts. Like we're addicted to having it, addicted to worshiping it. And so trying to obey God in this area at the very beginning is gonna feel really difficult. You're so addicted to it. 
I think often we think obedience is always gonna be like, I believed in Jesus, a flower blossomed in my heart and I just gave. Like that's not, so we think it's gonna happen. And truthfully, because you're more addicted to sin than you realize, sometimes obedience is saying, this is, feels so terrifying, but I'm gonna do it knowing he's gonna come through. Because faith causes you to believe and receive the gospel and faith causes you to obey even when it's difficult, even when it's scary. Because you're obeying in faith knowing the God who's been faithful to me in the past will be faithful to me in the future. So church, remember the Lord Jesus and then give in order to remind yourself of what is most true, that God is the one you're after. See, all of this, God's law, he's teaching us how to be human again. We lost so much of the image we had in the garden and God saves us. Now he gives us his law and his instruction to remold us back into that image. He's teaching us what it means to be human again. He's saying, turn from your wrong taking, turn from your wrong keeping, and quit worshiping the wrong God. Jesus died to save you from all those things. And so now, church, you can now look at, because if you're in Christ, you can look at your work, you can look at the ways you acquire things in this life, and now it can, it can be no longer just for self, but now his gospel can set you free to give. That now, instead of fear causing you to hoard, Actually, his love can set you free to be generous and see his image and his name be spread all over this planet. Let's pray together. Father, your generosity is unbelievable to think about. God, to think about in all the ways you keep giving to us and giving to us. God, even now in this moment, you have been giving to every single one of us in this room life, and we didn't even think about it. You have been giving to us nonstop, and the pinnacle of your generosity was the fact that you didn't even withhold your very son from us. The way you changed our greedy hearts, the way you changed our thieving ways was not simply to shout louder at us, but to outgive us. And God, I would just ask you that in this sort of topic, in this sort of realities, when it gets into the nitty gritty of our lives and, and the ones and the zeros in our bank account, when it gets into this area of life, that God, we wouldn't just talk about obeying you and talk about loving you more than money, but God, we begin to practice this. God, that we wouldn't do it out of guilt, out of some just obligation, but because we're set free to do such things. And that, God, the poor and the oppressed, the orphan and the widow, they would feel our generosity towards them. God, that the gospel would be tre treasured and honored and spread all over the city and the nations, and our funds would help that, support that. God, that we would be a grateful people who, Jesus, look at your poverty and marvel. We look at how much you lost for us. We look at the cross where you literally lost your greatest treasure, your father, so that we could be made rich just like you. God, remind us of all your great promises. Remind us that there is a day coming where there is no poverty, there is no lack, and we give to remind everyone around us this is not home. The kingdom is still to come in some ways. And so we give to point to that kingdom where our true inheritance is. God, make us a generous people because, God, you are generous. God, we ask these things in Christ's name.
Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.